0: This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, A new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.
1: Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to Poetry for Men, part of the Renaissance of Men podcast. In the weeks since I've been researching poetry for this show, I've had the chance to read hundreds of poems, more than during any other time in my life. Along the way, I've gotten a better sense of what I like, what I love, and what makes a poem truly great in my estimation. The poem I'll be reading this week is far and away one of the best that I've found. It's rewarded dozens of readings, and every time that I read it out loud, I can't help but marvel at its power, beauty, and effortless genius. But the subject matter of the poem is sex, and not just sex, but passionate lovemaking of the sort that transforms lives and builds civilizations. And the poem is rendered in explicit language. This is an unabashedly adult piece. The poet is unafraid to bring all the sides of himself as a man to bear on the event, from his base, somewhat crude side, to his mystical, poetic side, and everything in between. So before I launch into this week's discussion, I'd like to say a few things. First, if you're sensitive to adult content for any reason, this is not the episode for you. Second, it's taking an act of courage for me to read this, and not just because I have close friends and family members listening. But I believe this poem has many important things to say, in terms of its subject matter and its artistry. As risky as it feels to read, I can't not read it. It has far too much to teach us, and I hope I'll be adequate to the task. Because third, and finally, this is a great opportunity to explore the difference between what is art and what is obscene. And I hope for that you'll permit me a brief digression. This introduction will be a bit longer than usual because I'd like to have this discussion now and get it out of the way so that once I read the poem we can focus on the content and not the shock of the language. The difference between art and obscenity is an age-old debate. The famous phrase that comes to mind is, quote, I know it when I see it which was uttered in 1964 by U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart in defense of his opinion that a particular film entitled The Lovers was art and therefore protected speech. He said, I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description of hardcore pornography, and perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so, but I know it when I see it, and the motion picture involved in this case is not that. Now, this is a podcast about art, and not about law, so I'm not going to take obscenity to trial. I know plenty of men who are far more experienced at that conversation than I am. I'm also not going to talk about what art is. I happen to like these shorter episodes of my podcast, and unless you've got all day to explore the issue thoroughly, there's no way I can do it justice. But what I can say is that art possesses a quality that obscenity lacks, and that is the feeling of awe or reverence. At its highest expression, sex is a sacred act. It is the expression of the desire for two humans to attempt to break through the flesh walls that separate us and merge into unity. In that merging, and only in that merging, new life is created, and the power of creation is the power of God. So whether or not we choose to see it that way, sex is also that. And if that's the case, how can sex not be sacred? And art preserves that sense of the sacred. When we witness something sacred, the natural response is awe. And when we realize we're experiencing awe, the emotional response is reverence. These feelings are not and cannot be present in the obscene, which focuses on the mechanics of the act, divorced from any sense of higher purpose. That is what makes obscenity profane and art sacred. Obscenity speaks to our lower nature, and art to everything about us that is higher. Perhaps one might say, obscenity shows us facts, but art shows us the truth. And when we glimpse the truth, however briefly, reverence, awe, and humility in the presence of the sacred are the natural result in any healthy human heart. The presence of these feelings of awe and reverence for the sacred make this poem, Last Gods, by Galway Kinnell, a true work of art, in my opinion. Galway Kinnell is another 20th century American poet. He was born in 1927 in Providence, Rhode Island, to Scottish and Irish immigrants. And as an introverted child, he was drawn to the reclusive lifestyle of other American poets like Emily Dickinson and Edgar Allan Poe. As is a theme with many poets, his rich inner life helped distract him from the impoverished everyday existence of his mill town upbringing. From humble origins, he made his way to Princeton, where he graduated with highest honors, but not before serving in the Navy during World War II. At Princeton, he was assigned the poet W.S. Merwin as a roommate. History doesn't record whether the two were intentionally placed together or whether it was a quirk of fate, but Merwin introduced Kennel to the poet William Butler Yeats, whose naturalistic style would exert a lifelong influence on Kennel's work. After Princeton, Kinnell received his master's degree and traveled overseas, both to Europe on a Fulbright Fellowship and also as a teacher and journalist in Iran. He was a passionate supporter of civil rights during the 1960s and also of the anti-war movement. He even got himself arrested in 1963, helping to register black voters in Louisiana. About his work, Liz Rosenberg wrote in the Boston Globe, quote, Kinnell is a poet of the rarest ability, the kind who comes once or twice in a generation, who can flesh out music, raise the spirits, and break the heart. As a result of his gifts, Kinnell's book, Selected Poems, won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1983, and the same year he also split the National Book Award with another author. And by that time, Kinnell was the director of the Creative Writing Program at NYU. Some of his other accolades include a 2010 Wallace Stevens Award for Proven Mastery in the Art of Poetry by the Academy of American Poets, a MacArthur Fellowship, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Rockefeller Grant, a Chancellorship of the Academy of American Poets, the 2002 Frost Medal from the Poetry Society of America, and from 1989 to 1993, he was Poet Laureate for the State of Vermont. Kennel died in 2014, but not before leaving behind a beloved body of work. Upon his death, the New York Times noted that all of the volumes of poems he published from 1960 to 2008 are still in print. You can actually look him up on YouTube as well. I'll provide a link in the show notes to some videos of his you can even hear him read this poem on Spotify and decide which reading you like better his or mine. In person he was described as a strong imposing man but there's much more to him than that because as kennell himself declared quote it's the poet's job to figure out what's happening within oneself to figure out the connection between the self and the world and to get it down in words that have a certain shape that have a chance of lasting I can't think of a better description of the men i hope to reach than that so it is my great pleasure to read one of my new favorite poems of all time, Last Gods, by Galway Kinnell. She sits naked on a rock, a few yards out in the water. He stands on the shore, also naked, picking blueberries. She calls, he turns, she opens her legs showing him her great beauty, and smiles, a bow of lips seeming to tie together the ends of the earth. Splashing her image to pieces, he wades out and stands before her, sunk to the ankle bones in leaf mush and bottom slime, the intimacy of the visible world. He puts a berry in its shirt of mist into her mouth. She swallows it. He puts in another. She swallows it. Over the lake, two swallows whim, juke, jink, and when one snatches an insect, they both whirl up and exult. He is swollen, not with eker, but with blood. She takes him and sucks him more swollen. He kneels, opens the dark vertical smile linking heaven with the under earth, and licks her smoothest flesh more smooth. On top of the rock they join, somewhere a frog moans, a crow screams, the hair of their body startles up, they cry in the tongue of the last gods, who refused to go, chose death, and shuddered in joy and shattered in pieces, bequeathing their cries into the human mouth. Now in the lake two faces float, looking up at a great maternal pine, whose branches open out in all directions, explaining everything. This poem is absolutely exquisite. There's no other word. Though I'm no wine expert, to me this poem must feel something like appreciating a fine vintage. There's the note when it hits your tongue, then the note as it settles, and a third note as it passes from the palate and lingers. And as I've read this poem over and over, trying to understand its appeal, I've come to appreciate these three dense and interlocking layers, which give the poem its unique and potent flavor. The first layer, I think you'll agree, is the one of sexual passion, not just the union that the poem describes, but the way the tempo of the poem builds in its own way. Like Michael Blumenthal, Kinnell isn't just telling us, but showing us the act, with the music of his language. If you listen to him on Spotify, Kennel reads this poem very differently than I do. I read it the way I do, because I can't help it. And perhaps that's because a young man may also read it differently than an older man. But regardless, to me the feeling of increasing momentum building to a climax is an unmistakable feature of the language and the cadence. Notice the length of the sentences as the poem progresses, from She sits naked on a rock a few yards out in the water. Two, she swallows it, he puts in another, she swallows it. The repetition here quickens the pace, then peaking with, on top of the rock they join, somewhere a frog moans, a crow screams, the hair of their body startles up. And then, immediately after, the two longest and most open sentences of the entire poem. They cry in the tongue of the last gods, who refused to go, chose death, and shuddered in joy and shattered in pieces, bequeathing their cries into the human mouth. Now in the lake, two faces float, looking up at a great maternal pine whose branches open out in all directions, explaining everything. The entire poem centers around the word cry, a word which I don't just hear, but I feel, a universe of meaning contained in three letters, and then the construction of the long, comma-broken sentences that follow embody a rolling, post-orgasmic ecstasy as the energy bleeds out of the poem, the language, and the lovers, until they're floating, looking up at a maternal pine, and perceiving everything. I wasn't kidding when I said this poem describes a sort of passionate lovemaking that transforms lives, and we'll get to the civilization-building bit in a minute. If this is all the poem did, we'd be forgiven for wanting a cigarette after. But then there's a second layer of artistry, and that is the blending of the human with the natural world or rather the assertion that they're not even separate to begin with. Consider the imagery as we progress through the poem. The woman's mouth is a bow of lips, tying the ends of the earth together. The man's ankle bones sink into leaf mush and bottom slime, a visceral sensation that even Kinnell describes as the intimacy of the visible world, for reasons I don't need to explain. Then the blueberry is wearing a shirt, and I'd like you to note that it's the only participant in the poem with clothes. As the man feeds the woman a berry and she swallows, two birds are exulting at their own meal. Those birds are swallows. And their in-flight antics express the joy of the lovers in a way that land mammals can't, but that we often feel in our hearts. Then, as the woman's horizontal smile ties the ends of the earth together, her vertical smile links heaven with the under-earth. And finally, while the lovers join on the rock, the environment around them gives voice to their experience the frog moans and the crow screams, not them. The last image is of a maternal pine. Will the woman become pregnant? It seems so. So who's the mother here? The woman or the tree? Is there a difference? Kinnell asks. If that's the case, does the tree really explain everything or does something else? And if these were the only two layers of this poem, the visceral and the metaphorical, It would be safe to say that this is a great poem, but to me this poem achieves the status of high art for one final layer. Because who are the man and woman, and where are they? Do you know? If you don't, pause this recording, read the poem again, and think about it. They're Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, or at least, whoever these people are. They're a metaphor for that story. Consider the lover's nudity. It would take a brave or confident couple to be out in public so brazenly naked. And brazenly loud. Not impossible, but let's keep looking. Consider the idyllic natural setting total peace, total safety, and even total synergy between the human and animal residents. They are one, and there's not a hint of danger, or even the suggestion that what they're doing is illicit or mischievous. The act is presented as natural, like what else would they be doing? After all, the woman opens her legs. doesn't look over her shoulder before doing so. Then there's the presence of fruit. What about the blueberry? Well, an apple would be too obvious, and blue is a good substitute for red. But why is the man picking the fruit? Well, for one, the man on the rock spreading his legs probably wouldn't be quite so compelling a reason for the woman to wade out into the water. And besides, her picking the fruit and feeding him would again be too obvious and shatter the moment of the poem and immediately put the reader on guard for something preachy. By remixing his metaphors, so to speak, Kennel preserves the romance and passion of the poem and adds in just enough spiritual spice to affect the flavor. And besides, maybe the apple-eating incident is coming later in their story. Still don't believe me? What about the lover's cry in the tongue of the last gods? Who were the last gods? I can't help but feel that this is a reference to the titans of Greek mythology. The titans were earthbound gods with names like Oceanus and Cronus. And they were the gods who Zeus overthrew in ascending Mount Olympus and transitioned from earthly gods into the sky dwelling singular god we have today. But of course, Kinnell asserts that those gods remain with us, having bequeathed their cries to us, which emerge from our material bodies at the height of our earthly pleasure. We are one with the earth, after all. And for those skeptics who still don't believe that this is an Adam and Eve metaphor, I submit to you the final missing piece of that classic myth that forms the foundation of our civilization today and that image is of course the tree two naked lovers free of shame in a safe and paradisal setting eating fruit beneath the tree from passionate lovemaking embodied in language to vibrant naturalistic imagery and even subtle biblical metaphor this poem is as i said exquisite and canel weaves these themes together so effortlessly so enjoyably so fluidly as for them to pass by without conscious notice I feel quite comfortable saying we are in the presence of genius. But there's one final piece to bring us all the way back around. The language. The three layers I mentioned are heady themes. It would be easy, and dare I say natural, for a less skilled poet to spiral into abstraction, to focus on the philosophical, to become lost, ungrounded in his own metaphor. But by including graphic language and even slang, specifically the explicit phrases vertical smile, Sucking him more swollen and licking smoothest flesh more smooth, Kinnell uses words that might even be considered obscene and puts them into service for the purpose of art. Because those words draw us back from the pure metaphor and ground the moment not just in the lived experience of earthly lovers, but inside ourselves as readers, reminding us of experiences we've had but that we couldn't or perhaps wouldn't ever put those words to, and yet we know the truth of them. In this, Kennel isn't only saying, this is Adam and Eve, and he isn't only saying, these are two random lovers playing out a metaphor. He's saying this is his experience as a man, a strong, imposing, even masculine man. And by surfacing his experience for us and the words that come naturally to him in that way, from his childhood in a mill town plus a stint in the Navy, he gifts that experience to all of us, the readers. He makes it real. He once was an Adam to an Eve. The lovers are Adam and Eve. We are all Adam and Eve. And through passionate lovemaking, we find our way back into the garden, if only for a moment. We are the lovers. We cry in the tongue of the last gods. We are the tree. Ancient history and mythology plays out in all of us through eros, or passionate human love. And for those of us who know the feeling, doesn't that indeed explain everything? And as you listen to this poem again a second time, I invite you to join me in giving thanks to Galway Kinnell and to Art, that sublime force that can carry us into and beyond ourselves, unify the crude and the transcendent, and together make from them a third thing, beauty. Once again, this is Last Gods by Galway Kinnell. She sits naked on a rock a few yards out in the water, He stands on the shore, also naked, picking blueberries. She calls. He turns. She opens her legs, showing him her great beauty, and smiles, a bow of lips seeming to tie together the ends of the earth. Splashing her image to pieces, he wades out and stands before her, sunk to the ankle bones and leaf mush and bottom slime, the intimacy of the visible world. He puts a berry in its shirt of mist into her mouth. She swallows it. He puts in another. She swallows it. Over the lake, two swallows, whim, juke, jink, and when one snatches an insect, they both whirl up and exult. He is swollen not with eker but with blood. She takes him and sucks him more swollen. He kneels, opens the dark vertical smile linking heaven with the under-earth, and licks her smoothest flesh more smooth. On top of the rock they join. Somewhere a frog moans, a crow screams. The hair of their bodies startles up. They cry in the tongue of the last gods who refused to go, chose death, and shuddered in joy and shattered in pieces, bequeathing their cries into the human mouth. Now in the lake, two faces float, looking up at a great maternal pine whose branches open out in all directions, explaining everything.